Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. There's not a morning that goes by that we don't see some story about the impact of social media, the power of Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. With all of that, it's easy to forget the power of television, its impact on our lives growing up, how it shaped us, its power today, and what it has wrought with respect to our politics. As a reminder of just how powerful it is, let's listen to Howard Beale. So, a rich little man with white hair died. What has that got to do with the price of rice, right? And why is that woe to us? Because you people and 62 million other Americans are listening to me right now. Because less than 3% of you people read books. Because less than 15% of you read newspapers. Because the only truth you know is what you get over this tube. Right now, there is a whole, an entire generation that never knew anything that didn't come out of this tube. This tube is the gospel, the ultimate revelation. This tube can make or break presidents, popes, prime ministers. This tube is the most awesome goddamn force in the whole godless world. And woe is us if it ever falls into the hands of the wrong people. And that's why woe is us. And when the 12th largest company in the world controls the most awesome goddamn propaganda force in the whole godless world, who knows what shit will be peddled for truth on this network. So you listen to me. Listen to me. Television is not the truth. Television is a goddamn amusement park. Television is a circus, a carnival, a traveling troupe of acrobats, storytellers, dancers, singers, jugglers, sideshow freaks, lion tamers, and football players. We're in the boredom-killing business. So if you want the truth, go to God. Go to your gurus. Go to yourselves, because that's the only place you're ever going to find any real truth. <laughs> but man, you're never going to get any truth from us. We'll tell you anything you want to hear. We lie like hell. We'll tell you that uh, Kojak always gets the killer and that nobody ever gets cancer in Archie Bunker's house. And no matter how much trouble the hero is in, don't worry, just look at your watch. At the end of the hour, he's going to win. We'll tell you any shit you want to hear. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ate like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. And we turn our attention to television now as I'm joined by James Ponowazek. He's been the chief television critic for the New York Times. He previously was the television and media critic for Time magazine and a media columnist for Salon. It is my pleasure to welcome James Ponowazek here to the program to talk about his new book, Audience of One, Donald Trump, Television and the Fracturing of America. James, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. Did Paddy Chayefsky get it about right? 
Uh, yeah, Howard Beale was an angry man. He was an angry, angry man, but he did make some good points. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I, you know, I've said, you know, obviously, uh, I'm a a professional television critic. I am not in this line of work because I hate it. I'm not a masochist. I think there are, you know, <laughs> great things about and on television now. But um, you know, the point that network was making. Uh, you know, back back in the 1970s, is is very much true and even more amplified now. That you know, particularly when it comes to TV as a means of communication and a means of delivering news and public discourse, being carried out through the business of TV, uh, you have a tendency to turn whatever excites and you know angers and works people up the most. Uh, and you know that that has, in retrospect. That those that that twentieth century period when network came out kind of seems like a a, a, a blissful period of quiet in the culture right. compared to what you have now in the the twenty four hour media environment. And one of the the overriding points you make is that in order to understand Trump today and what we're going through, it's really important to understand the power of television. Yeah, uh, number one because you know Donald Trump as a person, as a personality, is basically a, a being made of television. You know, that, that, that is, he has been a pop culture figure in America for some 40 years. He has always cultivated and courted celebrity, you know, even before he really did much of note in his real estate business. He has, he, he has thrived in the, the media atmosphere. He realized that, you know, in a media culture, it's important to be seen and noticed and kind of become the media symbol of a thing uh, in order to leverage that into to, you know, other, other, other enterprises. Uh, and, um, you know, in order to understand how all the political and cultural forces that led to the moment that, that we're in now, so many of which, you know, came through the media and television news and polarized political media. Um, you know, the, the, these forces which made it possible for Donald Trump to go from tabloid figure in the 80s to reality host in the early 21st century to president of the United States, those forces are, are so many of them are products of the business of television. And, and you need to understand the business of television and how it changed over that time to, you know, under, to, to fully understand what our society has become. And within the context of how it evolved and how it changed, Trump in so many ways achieved a kind of symbiosis with television and with the way it was evolving. You know, not only was he somebody who always loved television and loved being on television and, you know, monitoring his coverage on television, as we can see, you know, now today with his, his uh, constant watching of, of, of cable news, uh, he was somebody who really intuitively and instinctively understood how the medium operated. You know, that television, a television camera always wants something new. It wants something exciting. It wants a flashier, more provocative, more sensationalistic performance. It wants a more, you know, a, a spectacular thing than you gave it the last time. And he, you know, was, was always, uh, long before his political career, uh, it, it, it instinctively ready and willing to put on that show. You know, he, he really, you know, I, th I think much of his sort of prodigious success at making himself a media omnipresence comes from the fact that 
uh, you know, he, he, he really sort of instinctively thinks like a TV camera. Right. I mean, he always manages to find a way to keep the focus on him, to make sure that, that he gets the red light, as you talk about. Uh, you know, this was, a, this was a thing that uh, Donald Trump said in an interview shortly after he was elected um, about his campaign. He said that at his rallies, uh, he often wouldn't pay attention to the people at the rallies because it was, it was easy enough to excite the crowd. If the crowd's energy flagged, you know, you would just say something like build the wall and, and, or lock her up and they'd cheer. But he said if, if, he, if he sensed the energy in the arena waning too much, I, he said I would always say something new to keep the red light on. And what that means is the red lights of the live TV cameras that are carrying your rally live on cable television. And, you know, the, the, the shining of the red light proves that you are interesting and worthy of attention and giving, you know, cable news, that cable news machine, the, the, the new uh, exciting things that it is hungry for in order to keep attention on you. You know, and, and I think even as much of a cliche as the power of television is in our society, I think he as you know, principally a media star rather than a, a politician who was sort of coached by media handlers, uh, is was was really able to, you know, wholly understand and embody the notion that attention is the rocket fuel of a campaign, and even bad attention is better than no attention. In that regard, is it about him telling a story? Is it about creating a narrative? in which he is the protagonist, or is it just about those moments? It's about moments more than narrative, I would say. Uh, in other words, um, it, it is very much, you know, I, I, I think you hit upon something important by saying the word protagonist, because I do think that, you know, one thing that 2016 showed with a tremendous amount of free media that, that Donald Trump got uh, in, you know, cable news and elsewhere uh, that did a great deal to elect him. It is very important to be the center of attention because that makes you the protagonist of the campaign. It makes you the, the person who the stories are about. Everything is about either you or how other people are reacting to you and so forth. But that's different from necessarily telling a crafted narrative. Uh, I, I sometimes describe it as the difference between a movie and a movie trailer, right? Like you, you go to the movie sometimes and you watch a trailer, and it's not necessarily narrative, but it's a series of explosions and excitements and moments that tell you you're going to be excited all the time if you see this. And that it was really sort of the communication style, you know, and is uh, of, of Donald Trump. It is not necessarily, uh, you know, a, a, a seamless, sensible narrative arc so much as it is explosion, 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 explosion uh, that, you know, that, that, that gives TV that new exciting thing that keeps its focus on you. But could Trump have happened without the sort of simultaneous rise of the anti-hero within television, whether it's Tony Soprano or Walter White or Don Draper or the Kardashians, for that matter? Without that base, could, could Trump have done what he did? Um, yeah, I mean, I, th I, think there were, I think there were a lot of factors that had to change from, you know, 1980 when Rhoda Barrett asked a young Donald Trump if he would ever run for president, and he said he didn't think he could because 
somebody polarizing like him couldn't get elected in a television culture until you got to the point where television, you know, essentially elected him. And one thing that that we saw between then and now was uh, as television moved from sort of a sedate three network medium with a lot of inoffensive programming, you had the rise of HBO and of cable and of popular TV antiheroes like Tony Soprano and Walter White on Breaking Bad. Uh, the, the notion of the character who is maybe you know, rough-edged, maybe an out-and-out villain, but they're also charismatic and fascinating to watch, and you can't take your eyes off them. Uh, you know, the, these, these shows like, you know, 24, that kind of took this idea and turned it into, you know, it, it, the, 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 an entertainment whose thesis is it's an ugly, dangerous world, and sometimes you've got to do ugly things to get ahead. And now, now, all of this, I think, I don't think that, you know, Donald Trump necessarily consciously modeled himself on this kind of figure. Really, the public persona that he had already created through the 80s and 90s as sort of, you know, the, the, the shark dealmaker of business uh, was 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 kind of this figure before the Tony Sopranos and Walter Whites of the world. And, and what that does, once that archetype is out in the popular culture and people have you know, spent some time sort of acculturated to that uh, and, and following and rooting for those heroes, it creates a different kind of story that a political candidate can tell. It creates a different kind of you know, archetype that you can sell yourself as. You don't necessarily have to position yourself as honest Abe anymore. You don't necessarily have to give lip service to morality and position yourself as, you know, a caring, warm-hearted, empathetic person, uh, you know, whatever your other qualities are. You can go out, as Trump often did in his rallies, and basically make the argument, you know, we're living in medieval times, and terrorists are coming to kill you, and people are swarming over the border to take your jobs and commit crimes. And, you know, this, this horrible thing is happening, that horrible thing is happening, and if we are on you know, the verge of this, this catastrophe that's going to threaten the life that you've all, uh, always known, uh, what does it matter if the president is nice? You know, he basically sold himself for the presidency as an anti-hero. And the genius is that he always stays in character, that he creates this TV character that embodies who he is. And, and part of the reason for that is, you know, it's important to, to note that Donald Trump is very much a performer. You know, he was on The Apprentice on NBC for, for 14 seasons. But being a reality TV performer is a very different thing from being, say, a movie actor like Ronald Reagan was. That is to say, you are not sort of cultivating an empathy for fictional characters and, you know, it, uh, trying to put yourself in the position of a, a, another person or another character that you're trying to play. Playing yourself on reality TV is being you but more, but, you know, exaggerated. You highlight the aspects of you that are most controversial and provocative and that get you the most attention uh, and that, that therefore, you know, keep the focus on you, keep you the center of the story. It is very much a, you know, kind of egocentric medium. It's, it's not about imagining yourself in the place of others, but presenting yourself as, as you, you, you. And so once you've sort of been trained in the media and, uh, you know, had this history of 
playing yourself flamboyantly for the cameras, uh, you don't break character because what you're doing is sort of single-mindedly being an exaggerated version of yourself in the way that, that gets you the, the most intention. You mentioned Reagan. I mean, that's the interesting contrast. Looking at Reagan on the one side and Trump on the other is really the history of the evolution of television. Um, it really is. You know, I mean, Reagan, in addition to being a movie actor, was a, uh, a you know, was, was a, a TV presenter for uh, General Electric. Uh, he came up through Hollywood first and then had to rise through the Republican ranks in order to be in a position where he could run for president. Unlike Donald Trump, who went straight from hosting The Celebrity Apprentice to announcing his run for the presidency. You know, I think I, I think I found it very interesting working on the book to see that Donald Trump was basically emerging as a national media figure around 1980, right around the time that Ronald Reagan was r- running for president. And one thing that's, you know, a difference in their, their campaigns that I think reflects the difference in the media environments that they ran in was that when Ronald Reagan ran for president in 1980, he had, you know, some of the questions about him were, is he too tough, too belligerent, too warlike? And he, in this sort of more moderate, uh, homogeneous media environment, in order to get elected, he had to also present a kind of avuncular, good-natured, good-humored soft side in order to get people comfortable with him. Uh, you know, move ahead to 2016, and it's a very different performance that you're giving to, you know, appeal to your base in the, the Fox Newses of the world and to keep that, you know, hungry 24-hour red light of the electronic media on you. So, you know, I think that, you know, the differences between them, they're not just differences in style and personality. They, they really are a picture of how much the culture has changed through the changes in media over the last 40 years. What role did talk radio play in setting the stage for the way television did some of this? Um, one of the things that Ronald Reagan did as president was uh, eliminate uh, something called the, the, the Fairness Act, uh, which, which governed broadcast communications, which was basically a rule that if you use the public airwaves, if you were a broadcast TV or radio station and you aired a political viewpoint, you had to provide a balancing political viewpoint for it. With that gone, that enabled the rise of political talk radio, which was especially con- uh, effective on the conservative side. So you had Rush Limbaugh uh, and so forth becoming major figures in the, the late 80s and early 90s. And what that did in part, uh, not only did that sort of help create a polarized political audience that got used to hearing, you know, getting all this red meat from their their favorite personalities, but it provided a model uh, once uh, Roger Ailes, the former Nixon media guru, founded Fox News in 1996. Uh, where he he very much went into that with the attitude, and, and cable, by the way, is not regulated by the government in the way that the broadcast airwaves are, so you are free to be, you know, to to have whatever content you want on it. And his idea was, you know, we're basically going to do conservative talk radio for television. 
And that was great. Uh, you know, it was very successful politically, as we've seen in, you know, basically giving Fox now a kind of stranglehold on the Republican base and the way it thinks and what its concerns are. And it was very successful as business. And part of the reason for that is that the business model of cable TV, which is 24 hours, is that you have to make your audience excited in, about the news even at times when there are no news, when there's no news going on. And one of the big ways to do that is with opinion and controversy and picking political fights. Uh, and, and, you know, at, at a place like Fox News, which cultivated an engaged political audience that really wanted that stuff, it, it's an endlessly renewable resource. So, you know, and, and, and talk radio really paved the way for that. They were, they were also the mean guys of television in, in the early days. People like Joe Pine, Morton Downey Jr., that, that really set a predicate for a certain kind of behavior. Yeah, this is, you know, this is all a, a continuum. Nothing in popular culture kind of leaps out fully formed, uh, uh, brand new. Uh, you know, it's, it's like a, an evolutionary chain in, in nature. And, you know, I definitely think through the 80s, you are particularly seeing, you know, various models of how you can be successful with Whereas earlier in television, television aimed for a thing called the least objectionable program, which is basically, you know, put things on the air that don't give people a reason to change the channel. You could also be successful with controversy and things that worked people up and, and, and made them mad. And, you know, mo you know, various models for that, you know, certainly in the explosion of talk TV in the 80s, you know, were folks like Morton Downey Jr., you know, Jerry Springer, uh, even the early version of, of Oprah in some ways before. Or Oprah became, you know, a more kind of inspirational TV host. Uh, it, 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 it all kind of reflected this, you know, truth in especially nonfiction TV that fights create ratings. Uh, and, you know, fighting was really part of the Donald Trump brand from the beginning. And that was something that translated very well, it turned out, to television. There was also a way that Trump understood this idea of least objectionable programming. I mean, it's no accident that among people in, in the 2016 election that didn't like either candidate, that that they broke for Trump, that, that he became the least objectionable. And it's somehow he understood that. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think that there were a lot of factors, beyond, uh, you know, behind that, you know, uh, one was, you know, a, an overarching theme of the 2016 election was that essentially no one, including Trump's own campaign, necessarily believed he was actually going to win. So for some people, it seemed like, you know, a free vote. Um, and for others, I think that, you know, and I think this is a thing that, that political pundits sort of missed in this election, uh, Trump's very outrageousness and his, you know, uh, objectionableness to uh, much of much of the audience and to the you know, traditional political establishment and so on uh, became a calling card for some people. I in other words, you know, people had various motives for voting for Donald Trump. But, you know, with I think some of these undecided voters that broke late. You know, the show that they were seeing on TV convinced them, OK, this is the biggest, most radical change. Uh, you know, 
why not vote for this guy from TV who everybody says is so shocking and do something really different and see what happens? There's also a sense and understanding of, and that pundits also missed, that ideology didn't matter, that you could be famous for being famous. Um, Yeah, and and that, uh, you know, and again, you know, political, you know, presidential elections are huge things. 62, some million people voted for Trump, and, you know, certainly some of them were probably, you know, just Republicans who wanted conservative Supreme Court justices or whatever. Uh, But, you know, I I think, you know, among the core of his support that, that made a difference from him, one thing that he took advantage of and that I think that, you know, cable news and the electronic media have really helped promote and build is the idea that people don't – politics is more uh, about sort of affect and emotion for a lot of people than it is ideology. It's not necessarily, you know, what's your particular, you know, policy on this tax issue or that health care issue. It's, you know – are you going to fight for my side? Are you going to, you know, attack my enemies and the, make the people that I don't like upset? Uh, you know, do I like your style? Does the way that you speak and, you know, the, 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 the punches that you throw on stage kind of resonate with something that I'm mad about or dissatisfied with in my own life? And I think that for a lot of Trump voters, this television theater of the way he conducted his campaign, that was the message in itself. Uh, another big refrain, I think, of a lot of the punditry on the 2016 election was that Trump was hurting himself by getting into pointless fights, you know, attacking John McCain, attacking random Republican opponents who weren't really threats to him on the, the debate stage. And I think what they missed, but what you would understand if you watched more reality TV, is that the fight is the point. The point of the fight is to show that you're a fighter, to say to your audience, look at these people I'm attacking. They're too bound by traditional proprieties and norms, and they can't even defend themselves. How can you expect them to defend you? You know, vote for me. I'm the street fighter in this in this brawl. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about how television, as it has evolved, as we're talking about it today, exists side by side with social media and the relationship between the two. Uh, there's definitely a symbiosis between them. You know, I, th- I think in, in, in the long run, you know, culturally, the Internet and social media might become a much bigger force that eventually, you know, supplants or overshadows television. But I think what we've seen certainly in the, the, the Trump era is that, you know, the way Trump used Twitter was often essentially to program television. He would tweet something outrageous or inflammatory, and that would become news, and then he would tweet about that, and, and the, 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 that, that tweet would become news. And it would sort of, you know, build this cycle. Conversely, um, you know, while a lot of people now say get their news from Facebook or Twitter, uh, a lot of that is, uh, you know, essentially programmed by, by 24-hour television news. You know, you might not watch you know, a Rudy Giuliani interview on CNN, but it will show up in your Facebook or Twitter feed nonetheless. So, so you know, in many ways, although social media is a competitor to television, I think, you know, right now, particularly in politics, it's often serving as a, a, a force multiplier and an amplifier for it. Uh, and it's also a really helpful medium, a really useful medium for celebrities 
and politicians who like to you know manage their own publicity, which is something that Donald Trump has always loved to do, going back to the 80s when he would you know call up reporters and pretend to be John Barron, spokesman for for, for Donald yeah. Trump. You know, on, on Twitter he can be his own press secretary all the time. Finally, talk a little bit about where we go from here. It it is arguable that Trump is kind of the apogee of all that we've been talking about with respect to reality television and where television is today. What's the reaction to it? What comes next for television and politics? You know, sometimes television, like politics, tends to be cyclical and uh, a pendulum. Uh, you know, a trend gets overexposed in television and people burn out on it and they, you know, retreat to something that's sort of the opposite of it. It is entirely possible that at least for a while after the Trump presidency, whether it's, you know, another one year or five years, uh, that, you know, people turn to something that is a more soothing, boring kind of presentation. But long term, uh, unless something really shifts technologically or culturally, uh, I, th- I think that, you know, political media is only going to get more excitable and sensationalistic because that is the kind of discourse that, you know, a, a, a fragmented, polarized uh, kind of niche media rewards and cultivates. So, you know, I, I, I don't think it's the, you know, I think, I think it's a mistake to look at our political discourse right now and say, well, it's all about Donald Trump. And, you know, once Donald Trump is no longer president, you know, things will be back to normal. In a way, Donald Trump is just sort of an extreme manifestation of what has become normal uh, in, in, in our, our politics and media culture. And I think that those forces, you know, exist whether he's president or not. James Ponowazek, his book is Audience of One, Donald Trump, Television and the Fracturing of America. James, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me on. Thank you.